Lord Jesus, yes, you are, and thank you. If we had to put our hope and trust in ourselves, we would be lost on our best day. So thank you for coming for us when we were at our worst, and you were always simply, eternally, and perfectly the best. Thank you for loving us as we are, and loving us so much that you won't leave us that way. But you welcome us into the family and put us on a path of growth and grace. And we thank you. And we want to hear from you, Lord, in your hard words in Luke 14. So help me. Help my brothers and sisters. Thank you for all those who have come for the first time. May they hear not me, but hear your voice in the scriptures. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. My goodness. You were singing, did you realize? Some Sundays it's like, eh, you know. California, cool, we'll hang back, we're not that excited. It's a strange thing not to overhype and to produce any false emotionalism, but it's always unusual that people will lose their minds at things like Little League baseball games <laughs> or stuff they're watching on TV and then be so reserved in church. Yes, all things decently and in order, but with enthusiasm, with gratitude, with excitement, with joy, with reverence, all of these things that God has prepared for us. I met a lot of people in the parking lot for the first time. They were kind enough not to be creeped out that the pastor was charging over to, uh, to say hello. If I didn't get a chance to meet you, welcome. If I did, uh, thanks for taking a moment to, to say hi. We're delighted that you're here. We've prayed for you all week, even if we just met. Uh, we prayed for you all week. I prayed for you this morning uh, that God would meet with you because there's, there's no point in any of this if we don't hear from God. He's the one that matters. Pastors, at best, are just messengers. We're just reporters and people on the journey with you, with Jesus, to help you hear what God has said in the Scriptures. And the portion of the Bible that's occupying us this morning, again, is Luke 14. We've been going with Jesus for quite a long time now and taking breaks to look at other parts of the Bible, but now for the next several months, we're going to rejoin Him in Luke 14. A long time ago, we watched His birth being announced, and then we watched Him being born and celebrated. We watched Him grow up in Luke chapter 2. We saw Him in the fullness of of adulthood and the beginning of his ministry in Luke chapter 4, go to his hometown of Nazareth, open up the scriptures on the Sabbath day, read the prophet Isaiah, and make the audacious claim that what he had read to them was being fulfilled right in front of them. In other words, that the prophecy of the one who would give liberty to captives, who would set prisoners free, do things like open the eyes of the blind, that it was he, the one who was speaking to them in this little synagogue in this unimportant town. Luke 4 says they were initially compelled by his teaching. They marveled at him, but then the tide turned. And for his trouble of his announcement, they tried to kill him by throwing him off a cliff that remains outside of the city in Nazareth to this day. We saw Jesus call his first disciples and do astonishing things with them. We saw them empower the twelve as with the same kind of authority from God that he himself had. And now in Luke 14, the battle lines have definitely been drawn. 
And I would encourage you as we go through this journey together that you keep reading the Gospel of Luke. Whatever you're reading devotionally, that's great, but keep reading the Gospel of Luke. You might want to wrestle a little bit with the passage that comes next when I'm done today. A pretty hard story today. Jesus puts some people on the spot as He is so fond of doing. But then in the second half of the chapter, what comes next week, it's so much worse. If you read it seriously and carefully and not just dismiss it, I promise it'll make you uncomfortable. And then, hopefully, you're in a Luke group. If you're not in a Luke group, we're still enrolling. You can study during the week, before or after the, the service where I preach this little part of Luke. You can discuss it and talk about how to apply it. But in Luke 14, the lines are drawn. And Jesus is welcomed to dinner. I can't prove it, as the text doesn't say so. But it's probably an invitation to a very important religious man's house on the Sabbath day after Jesus himself had taught in the, had taught in the synagogue. The text doesn't say that, so it's just a speculation, but it would not be uncommon for an invited teacher to the synagogue to be honored afterward by being invited out to lunch. When I preach away from our church, I'm always a little weirded out if they don't take me to lunch right after church. <laughs> That's the first sign that I won't be invited back. Now, why is that? Because sharing a meal with someone implies acceptance. We invite people to meals, especially meals in our home, only if we care about them. That person that creeps you out at school or at work, you're probably not thinking about having them over. You might endure a meal with them in a social setting like the office party, but you'll, you'll find a way to stand on the other side of the room and ask yourself, how long do we have to be here? And, you know, when can I socially acceptably leave without causing a stir? Everybody been there? Luke, more than any other gospel writer, tells you stories of Jesus at mealtime. And he's very intentional. Because by the end of his gospel, this most Gentile of all gospels is going to tell you that Jesus is going to open the mind of his disciples so that they'll understand the Scriptures and then say, you have to tell the, all the nations. You have to tell the pagans. You have to tell the people who eat meat sacrificed to idols. You have to tell the people who currently worship idols. This good news is going to all the nations. And that's why Luke tells you so many mealtime stories, because he wants you to see very carefully that Jesus is forever having meals with people. And some of them are very religious and very observant and very strict, and others are the worst kind of people, the kind of people that Jesus is actually going to be criticized for sharing a meal with. And the reason for that is, then and now, a meal, table fellowship, Bible scholars call it, we don't have to get that fancy. Just if you tell someone at your school, at your work, hey, you want to grab lunch? You kind of like them. You're not offering that to your nemesis. And Jesus is treating people. Jesus, who says he loves people, is doing something pretty radical. He's actually acting like he not only loves them, but he likes them. And that's why we read the story in Luke chapter 14.
Luke chapter 14 says, One Sabbath when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. Does that sound like a fun lunch? Now, why are they watching him carefully? Because they're asking themselves this question. This is what's driving the whole story. This is what drives every human heart. Who's good enough for God? You see, when you invited someone to lunch, what you're stating in so many words is, I like you. I like your style. I like your vibe. You're good enough to sit with me, enjoy a meal. This really gets kind of awkward and difficult in junior high when sometimes the mean kids say, you can't sit with us. We don't say that as adults anymore, but we find ways of making sure that people understand we don't want them to sit with us. Jesus is struggling with the question in the hearts of the people sitting around the table, who's good enough for God? And they've made their answer, and you're in your own way, so have you. Every religious system, even if it doesn't have a name, basically says, you're not good enough for God, but you can be. If you'll do this stuff, these prayers, these offerings, these behaviors, this fasting, these things, if you do these things long enough, well enough, sincerely enough, you can start climbing up. And the idea of climbing up is all over these stories because verse 1 says that this is the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, the most observant of all the Jews, if my theory is correct, and again, it doesn't matter if it is, but if perhaps this is the man who is in charge of the synagogue, he thinks he's made it. He's not at all sure about Jesus. And he knows for certain that a lot of the people who Jesus hangs out with and does things for, they're not going to make it. One Sabbath when he went to dine at the house of the ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. In other words, they're not, over, they're not only having him over for dinner, they want to have him for dinner. They're trying to catch him in a trap. And behold, there was a man before him before Jesus, who had dropsy. It's kind of a funny word for a very unfortunate and painful disease. It's what we call edema. It's a big problem. It means that fluid is collecting in your limbs. It's painful and disfiguring. And worse than that, in the ancient world, in the Jewish mind at this point in history, it evidently meant that they thought you probably would only get that if God was upset with you. In other words, not only do you have the physical pain of having swollen arms and legs, maybe not being able to walk a pain-free step, but you're in that condition because there is sin in your life and God is letting everybody know, don't hang out with this guy. He's so sinful I had to punish him this way. And Jesus asked an uncomfortable question. Jesus responded to the lawyers. These are not modern-day attorneys, okay? These are experts in the Jewish law. Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And that should be a pretty obvious question. They've set the Sabbath aside as Moses had commanded, and part of the commandment of Moses was, don't do any work on the Sabbath. You have six days to rest. The seventh day is set aside for God and rest. So stop working. 
So Jesus says there's a man at the table. Often these meals were held in public, so he doesn't necessarily have to be invited. He may be nearby. Jesus sees the problem. The man knows the problem. He's feeling it. His body is aching, and everybody's thinking, oh, man, the wrong kind of guy showed up for lunch. And Jesus is pointedly asking them, should I do something about this? We know that God set this day aside. You read the law. You know the law. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. I love Jesus. Always willing to go against the grain if the grain is set against God. He just destroyed his reputation. In their mind, this is exactly the sort of thing that they were hoping he would do. That's why they were watching him carefully. I even wonder, can't prove, was this man a plant? Was he invited to the meal with this particular disease just to see what he'll do, what Jesus will do? And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? You answer that question. No matter how observant you are, if your ox, which feeds your family, that is the most important belonging probably in a Jewish home, because that big, strong animal is going to be used to plow. That's basically your economic engine. That's your groceries. If your livelihood falls into a well, or even worse, your kid falls into a well, would you pull him out? What would you say? Of course. And the law of Moses makes these kinds of humanitarian, compassionate, reasonable, loving exceptions so that you don't have to stand in a well looking at your nine-year-old going, hey, buddy, it's tough. It's Saturday. (laughs) But it's okay. Sundown is in four hours, so just hang in there. Hold on to that one rock. Don't let go, and we will be right down there as soon as the Sabbath ends. The answer is obvious. What is Jesus struggling with here? He's struggling against legalism. That's what Christians normally call what's happening in the hearts of these men. And this whole story, and it's a long one, and it's going to get worse and worse before we're over. It won't take long, but it's going to get a lot worse for the men around the table with Jesus. It's about legalism. And legalism works in two ways. One is disastrous, and one will literally send you to hell. The first and the worst kind of true, pure legalism says, you have to be good enough for God. So do the stuff. Whatever your tradition, whatever your religion, whatever your conscience tells you to do, do that or God won't accept you. And what you're doing is you're earning your own salvation. Anybody who knows the God of the Scriptures, who understands the grace of Jesus, knows that Jesus came not to give good advice, but to announce good news. That you can't be good enough for God. That's why Jesus is going to live perfectly in your place, die on the cross to pay for your sins, and rise from the dead to give you eternal life. Every genuine Christian understands that, that the only way to be good enough for God is by the grace of God which means you can't earn it, and that you receive it and begin to enjoy it, not when you're good enough, but when you trust God to give it to you. That's why we say, by grace through faith. 
The grace of God alone can save me, and what I must do is commit myself entirely to Him. And if you haven't done that yet, today should be your day. I can't decide for you. I can't compel you. I can just explain to you, life-saving good news has been offered by Jesus. I'm the reporter telling you about it, and you have to trust Him or you risk your soul. That's Jesus' message from the beginning of His ministry to the end. That's one kind of legalism, and it's the worst kind. There's another kind, though, that I'm very familiar with because of the Bible college I attended. There's a second kind of Christian legalism that says Jesus alone can save you, but if you're really serious about Jesus, you're going to do all of these behaviors to make sure He's pleased with you. And I mentioned my Bible college because we had a lot of rules. In fact, this simple outfit is three infractions at my Bible college. <laughs> Let me explain. I'm wearing blue jeans. That's forbidden. My shirt's untucked. That's forbidden. And my hair's a little long. I might with a little more hairspray, and I promised to get a haircut this week. I'm sorry you have to see this. But with a little more hairspray, I might be able to pull it off. But some of you guys... You'd be working forever <laughs> because the infractions that are individual infractions at our school meant two hours, two volunteer hours. Well, not volunteer because they're telling you you have to do it. Um, two hours of forced labor unpaid by infraction. And depending on how strict the grader is, the particular member of the tribe who's coming over to make the call, this would certainly be four and might even be six. And that's legalism. And both in churches and Bible colleges and families, it often creates a division because there are those who really get it and are really pleasing to the Lord, and there are those who, who don't. And it was a lot of fun to navigate through that Bible college. My roommate was, I won't call him a clever genius, he was an evil genius rather, he was just a clever genius. It divided the campus into two people, people who thought these things were actually very important to God and they generally became very proud because that's what legalism does to you. It makes you look down on others. We had one student, for instance, who was so committed to the rule book, he worked as a campus security guard, which is fine, we all got to do something to get through school. But the campus security guards, more than any others, were the students' position to make the call and judge the rest of us. This poor soul walked out of the dorm one day and realized 10 steps out of the dorm that he had forgotten to wear his belt, which itself was an infraction. Can you guess what he did? He wrote himself up. <laughs> that is a company man, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Say what you will about him, he's not a hypocrite. <laughs> Justice rolled down like the waters on Ernesto because he was caught up in a spirit of legalism. And see, that's the first thing that legalism does. Legalism blinds you, and the first thing it blinds you to is love and justice and mercy. Jesus asked the question not because he had to, because he wanted to teach these self-righteous people. That's the heart of legalism, that I will be self-righteous. 
The righteousness of God alone is not enough. I will be self-righteous. I will please the Lord, or I will, in the worst case, in the condemning case, I will earn enough favor with the Lord so that I will be accepted at His table. And it blinds them to love and justice and mercy. Jesus healed this man because He loved him. He healed him because it would be unjust with the Savior at the table to make this man suffer one more day and night. And He healed him also because of His mercy. Maybe He was sick because He had been wicked. Jesus is just going to heal him and send him on his way. And if you notice in the story, that man leaves. And they could not reply to these things, we're told. And then Jesus is going to make it worse for them. Now, he told a parable to those who were invited. And my Bible reading tip to you always is slow down, read the Bible more carefully. I read this probably half a dozen times before I noticed the most important word in that little section, which is parable. Jesus is going to give them what sounds like very sensible and, frankly, slightly calculating advice, but it's not social advice. Jesus didn't come to give good advice. He came to announce good news. But he's going to pick up on the very table setting that they're at and tell them a parable, meaning a symbolic story with a twist, with a punch at the end. Parables work in a way like jokes. Things are going along very normally, and then at the end, there's a twist which you were not expecting, and the point is always in the twist. Does that make sense? Watch how he draws them in. He told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, well, they're choosing the places of honor. What does that mean? It means that the first century society was extremely stratified, even more than our culture now. In other words, where you got to sit at one of these dinners was really, really important. And some of these guys are arriving early and picking out the best seat. And that's not really so far removed from our culture. We do that. You're having a big family gathering, just as a for instance. You're having dinner with your in-laws at the first Thanksgiving where they're your in-laws. Big deal or little deal? Big deal. And your nitwit nephew, who's nine years old, sits at the head of the table. What do you do? Okay, buddy, what are you doing? Kid's table. Or maybe, depending on the family, big table, but not at the head of the table. Who sits at the head of the table? Dad does. I don't like to sit at the head of the table, because that's where the bill always arrives, at the restaurant, right? <laughs> We understand we're in someone else's home. They're going to sit at the head of the table. That's just a little cultural understanding that some seats are better than others. And it's a big deal when they let you escape the kids' table. But they'll put you down at the end with all the other barely out of kidhood kids, right? Well, in this setting, this highly important right after the Sabbath, right after the synagogue meal, probably, they're jockeying for position. In other words, they're doing around the table what is happening spiritually in their hearts and what is happening in every human heart. They're trying to climb up and push their way forward to say, I'm good enough for God. I made it. I know enough. I practice enough. I give enough. I've made it. So he told them a parable. Verse 8, 
When you were invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come to you and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. Oh. There's a cultural thing here. See, we in the West are not part of what anthropologists call a shame-based culture. But they are on the other side of the world. And others, we all felt that. That would be a little embarrassing to be sent down table. But in Jesus' culture and in many cultures around the world, to make that long walk of shame because you pushed yourself forward and measured your worth and said, I'm good enough to sit here, and the host comes by and says, no, you're not. Go down there. And you have this long walk to the lowest seat because everybody's taken a seat ahead of you. Jesus is telling them a parable. It's not just social advice. It's a parable to picture something. Look at the end of the parable. But when you were invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Is that better or worse? That's better. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. Jesus isn't just a calculating social climber. He told that very familiar story based on the way they were acting to give them this simple truth. Verse 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You'll find that thought all the way across the Bible, beginning in Proverbs 3, verse 34. It keeps being repeated over and over and over again, not because it's such good advice, but because it is a fundamental spiritual truth that legalism won't let you see. Because legalism, first of all, blinds you to obvious love and obvious justice and obvious mercy, but it also blinds you to this biblical idea. It keeps you from understanding that the way to be lifted up is to lower yourself. You want God to exalt you? Lower yourself. Stop trying to climb up. Acknowledge how low you are. And God won't have to humble you. He'll lift you up. He'll exalt you. That simple biblical idea that everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted runs through all of life, but the most important thing it touches is the moment people trust Jesus as their Savior. As long as you're trusting anything or anyone beyond Jesus Christ as your Savior, you cannot be saved. I'm afraid in too many people's understanding, the way they understand the gospel is this. Jesus has done a lot and I'm going to meet him halfway. Or maybe not halfway, but he's come 90% of the way down, so I, he's left me the 10%. I can cover that. I can't make it all the way to heaven. He's come down almost, and if I just close the gap with my very good behavior, I'm very serious, I'm very reverent, if I'm really, really good, then he'll save me. No, you're still trusting yourself. A gift means that it's purchased entirely at someone else's expense. Listen, please understand this. The announcement of Jesus is not that salvation is a bargain. 
where Jesus is paying most of it and leaving only a little bit of you for you to pay. No, salvation is a gift at the men at this table do not understand it. If you won't humble yourself, you will be humiliated. That's the way life works in the kingdom of God. That's the way life works here on earth. If you humble yourself, literally in the Bible, that means to lower yourself. God, in His mercy, because of His great love, God will reach down in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, and lift you up. And the men at the table don't know this, which is why Jesus is trying to wake them up. Saying, you're not only social climbers, you're religious climbers. And if you want real honor, if you want real blessing, you have to humble yourself. And then, as I told you, he makes it worse. Look in verse 12. He also said to the man who had invited him, well, that's pretty awkward. Because there's this poor sick man, and Jesus says, hey, should I heal him or not? We all agree it's the Sabbath, that's why we're at this table. Is it right for me to heal him? We don't know. They refuse to say a word, so he heals him. And he says, oh, by the way, I've noticed how you acted when we started this meal. You were all kind of looking side-eye at each other, figuring out who's going to sit where and hoping you could weasel your way into the best chair. Let me tell you something that is true in the kingdom of God. Everyone who tries to climb up, as you're so obviously trying to do, will be humiliated. If they'll choose to humble themselves, God will lift them up. And then he addresses his host. In other words, they thought they were hunting Jesus. But a little clue about Jesus, he's never the hunted. He's always in charge. He also said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. This is really uncomfortable because he's speaking directly to a single guy who's hosting this big meal. And what did he say? You invited the wrong people. You invited people who enjoy you. You invited people of your same status. Now again, this is teaching. This is deliberately provocative teaching to make a big spiritual point. Jesus isn't actually absolutely literal saying you can never enjoy a family meal again. I know that's true because at the end of his life, as Jesus approaches the cross, he will retreat to Bethany where Mary and Martha live and he will enjoy his last days with his closest friends. He's talking about their legalistic heart because he says... And this carries over into our day as if no time had passed at all. The way you're using table fellowship, the way you're expressing hospitality, the way you are doing for others only has one thing in mind. You only want to do things for others that can do things in return for you. And isn't that the way it works? That's why nobody's excited when the intern asks them to go to lunch. Everybody's excited when the boss asks them to go to lunch. Because the intern, he can't do anything for you, but the boss might. Look how sharp this story gets before we're done. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And those categories, 
The poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, in some very strict Jewish communities, people thought, if you're in that condition, it's because God has rejected you. You wouldn't be poor, you wouldn't be crippled, you wouldn't be blind if you still had God's favor. Jesus is turning this religious man's world upside down. He's saying to him in as many words, this whole time we've been eating, you've been wondering who's good enough to be at this table. Stop it. Stop inviting the right kind of people and invite the outcasts who can do nothing for you. And here's the promise. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. In other words, when God comes at the end of history, he'll reward you. You invest your life and your love and your money and your sacrifice in people who can do nothing for you, God will make sure you don't come up short. You'll be repaid by God because you love people who couldn't repay you on earth. And that's the heart of this church. Every act of love, every bit of service, every, every offering we collect is not intended to gain us favor or to make us acceptable to God, but to show the love and the mercy of God generously to people who cannot repay us so that God in His grace someday will reward us. That's how good He is. We, it's not that we have to do this alone. We get to do this. And this is a very uncomfortable story, and somebody's going to try to break the tension. Verse 15, when one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, what's that about? Well, at these big family gatherings where we have to have the family over, notice the word have to, okay, because there's some members of the extended family that maybe we're glad Thanksgiving only comes once a year, right? There's the one crazy uncle who always mentions the terrible thing that happened in the family that everybody has quietly agreed should never be mentioned. He goes, hey, remember that time, Marge? And, oh, here's the worst thing our family's ever suffered through, and this nincompoop's talking about it in front of everybody, and it just sits there like a skunk dead on the table. And then somebody says... Man, this roast is really good, isn't it? And everybody goes, oh, yes, wonderful roast. Give him, stop. That's what this man is doing. He heard it. He heard Jesus say, you've invited the wrong people. You've invited people who on earth and in the kingdom you think can do something for you. Stop. Invite the outcasts. And if you're a real disciple of Jesus, at least part of what this teaching means is that we constantly have to be thinking and acting to make sure that we're extending the love and the mercy of God to people who nobody else says deserve it. Who we may think ourselves by our own legalistic hearts are actually at the bottom of the pile and are owed nothing by us. This man tries to break the tension. Would it surprise you to know that Jesus made it worse? Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, in other words, Jesus takes this guy on now. A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. In the ancient world, apparently there were two invitations. There was basically a save the date because there's no refrigeration 
because food is scarce, because meat is rare and a privilege. So someone who's going to give a big banquet puts things out well in advance and says, I want you to come and be at my house. I'm killing the cow. Make sure you come. And then a second invitation saying it's time. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to those who had been invited, saying, Come, for everything now is ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen. That would have made him rich. I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife. And therefore, I cannot come. What do you think of the excuses? It's pretty lousy. Because the man says, I bought a bunch of property, I have to go see it. That's odd. There might have been a post-purchase inspection. But this has been set aside for some time. It sounds odd. I bought some animals to plow my fields. I have to go inspect them. Again, and the third guy said, I, I'm married. <laughs> I sympathize a little bit with the third guy. <laughs> maybe she's not invited, maybe she doesn't want to go, I don't know, but they all make excuses. Luke isn't even interested in the validity of the excuses, he's interested in the offense. Because in any culture, but especially this one, all three men have said, I have a higher priority than you. There's no refrigeration in these days. This has been going on for some time. Tremendous expense has been laid out. And they all said, I can't come. And what it says socially is, I don't want to. I heard about your hospitality. I heard about your generosity. But I have better things to do. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry. He understood the offense. And said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Are you picking this up? I invited the right people. They don't want to come. Go get the people who nobody invites anywhere. Go out and invite the people who don't think they'll ever be invited. This is Luke's gospel. This is why it extends all the way to Luke 24 when Jesus tells the disciples, having opened their mind to the Scriptures, that the nations, the idolatrous, pork-eating, defiled, sensuous, awful nations, they too must hear the gospel and they will come and believe from everywhere. And they're going to end up at the table. The right people and the best people were invited, but they wanted nothing to do with it. So the master says, go out into the rough places, go out to the edges of town and bring them in. And the servant said, sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, don't miss the picture here, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled for I tell you none of these men who were invited shall taste my banquet it's pretty easy to understand that who lives even now who lives in the hedges and the highways the homeless 
And see, many times the homeless, even by Christians, are looked down upon with contempt because people perhaps reasonably ask for themselves, what did you do to put yourself in this situation? And if you dig into those stories, many times there were choices. There were sinful, foolish choices that led to that specific situation. But mercy says, I don't care what you did to get yourself in this situation. I've come to give you good news, though you weren't expecting it and you don't deserve it. That's the gospel. And any Christian who hears the severity of that parable and says to himself, well, I don't know, is actually saying to himself, I deserve it, those people don't. And every human heart crafts its own list of who deserves Jesus and who doesn't. If you don't believe it, search your own heart. And the end of this teaching ends with this severe promise that those who were invited will not taste the banquet. What is the third and final thing that legalism blinds us to? Simply this, legalism blinds you to this simple idea that God's grace towards you, it blinds you to God's grace towards you and your obligation to give it to others. The minute you're invited to the party, the minute you're invited to God's table, you're a party guest. But the gospel says the minute you become a party guest, you should turn into a party host. That's the point of the gospel. That Christians should go into the highways and hedges, regardless of economic condition, to people who are so broken by sin that they don't think God could ever love them or favor them, and also to people who are so self-righteous that they have no need for God to give everyone alike an invitation to the party and the banquet and the kingdom of God. And so many times, legalism blinds Christians to their true purpose because we think to ourselves, I've been invited to the party, yay for me. Who cares if anyone else comes? In my long Christian life, because I've been a Christian for quite a long time now, I've always loved and appreciated most the Christians who remember the before part of their story. Because sometimes when Jesus changes you and saves you, you get so interested and so accustomed to the after part of your story that you forget the before and you forget the condition you were in when Jesus came down for you. Who should this church love? Everyone. Who should hear this good news? Everyone. What would keep us quiet? All kinds of things, but particularly legalism. They won't listen. They don't care. They don't deserve it. No, friends, in God's kingdom, God's kingdom is family tables, a party, it's a celebration. And we're not only supposed to attend, we're supposed to bring others. That little word compel is there. It's a really strong Greek word because what the master is saying is they won't think they're invited. They won't believe you. People living in a hedge won't think that the party is for them as well. Go tell them and persuade them until they get to the table and my house is finally full. That's what Jesus is working on right now. That's why we send our missionaries. That's why we go through our community. That's why we pursue our friends and our neighbors even when they're far from God. We pursue them because the kingdom of God is a party and we want everyone to celebrate the Father's goodness because we've come to understand that none of us deserve to be here But by the grace of God, we're all loved and we're all invited. What this long teaching from Jesus, where he makes the story tighter and tighter and worse and worse, is meant to convey is simply this. 
for fighting legalism and because none of us can climb up to God, Jesus came down for us. Whatever legalism is in your system, give up on it, repent of it. There's not one person here, including the guy who's talking to you, that can work his way up to God. The Bible says that my righteous works are like filthy rags in God's sight. My best actions, my best intentions are worthless in the sight of a holy God. That's precisely why God in His love sent His Son to cover me and cover you. This is God's grace. This is the good news. If you believe it, enjoy it. If you believe it, spread it. And if you don't believe it, if you're not yet sure, if you haven't accepted your invitation into the family around God's table, I'm asking you in the name of Jesus, do it now, because you'll never climb up on your own. But Jesus has come down for you. Let's pray. Could I start with the last group of people I addressed? Are you quite sure of your salvation? If you're not, could I invite you to simply and humbly tell Jesus, Jesus, I believe. I've been trying to figure it out. I've been trying to learn. I've been trying to better myself. But today, you've helped me understand that I can't make it on my own. I can't be good enough for God. So please just come down and save me. You heard it from Jesus. If you humble yourself, you'll be exalted. But that step down out of pride is a hard one. It's the longest journey you'll ever take. But God's grace will allow you to do that. Just humble your heart. And if you trust Jesus this morning, please let us know. Take the card that's in your bulletin. Put it in a box at the end, at the, at the back of this room, rather, when you, before you leave. And if you're at the table already, did you forget how wide the mercy and the grace of God are? Have you given up on some folks? Have you just gone quiet for months or years because you're happy to be at the party and not really worried if anybody else comes? Let's tell everybody as we celebrate ourselves. Father, make this a church, please. Make us a spiritual family that goes out into highways and hedges and persuades people of how loving and gracious you actually are. If there's a single person here who is still in sin, they still feel the guilt and the shame of their guilt before you, I ask, Lord, that they would turn to you right now. Turn themselves in confess to you their sin and ask you to be their Savior. And help us, Lord, having been invited to invite many others into the party that is the kingdom of God. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. And Crosspoint said, Amen. Amen.